Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Wimbledon round one in the books for Federer and Djokovic. Both are through. Both are through in four sets. Novak played on Monday. He defeated Jack Draper in four. Federer uh, comes through, and you know it looked like it was going to be impossible that Federer would win in four sets because his opponent, Adrian Manorino was up two sets to one, but unfortunately had to retire in the fourth set. Sad scenes as the Frenchman who's a veteran and, and who's really put in the hard work on tour was in a good position here to, uh, to try to pick up a very high profile victory. And we will start there. It was dramatic. It's fresh in our, in our minds. Cause we just watched it for, for Roger Federer. What a strange way, Joel, to move into the second round at a slam. Yeah, I guess in boxing, they call that a TKO. I mean, he just was fortunate, but he was for a while there, particularly those, through those uh, second and third set. Federer was really scratching for form. And uh, as he said in his post-match interview, give a lot of the credit to Manorino for some of the things he did. Yeah, the the cross-court backhand from Manorino in a Federer's forehand. But, but Federer, his forehand was so far off, Amy. It was not close to the Federer forehand that that we'll need to see for him to go deep. There were moments when the forehand left the building and anybody who plays knows that you have a favorite stroke. It's a dependable stroke. And sometimes you just can't find it. It just, and therefore you have to reach into your bag and find other ways to get things done. And what he did was he decided to use his backhand and um, he was able to come up with a couple of good passes and some very solid shots on that wing. And also, more uh, importantly, come into the net and start finishing points off at the net. And his volley did not let him down. So um, not only did the forehand produce a lot of errors, Gil and Joel, but it was the way that it was producing errors. He was shanking and duffing a lot. And, and his timing is off right now. So um, not a surprise, but it's still sometimes you can't believe your eyes. Yeah, yet another inconclusive effort from Federer. Like, well, where's he at? Where, yeah. where was, the, where was the, routine, the routine opening match? or for that matter, the five set triumph. And, and Manorino, uh, his kind of style, and if you want to talk about this more, we can. He uh, reminds me of the style where he can, he can cut you, but he can't kill you. And I think Federer realized as the fourth set got underway, all right, okay, it's time for me to make myself present. And the forehand has been betraying me, so I have to apply pressure in some other ways. And let's see if you can come up with some passing shots when we need to get on with this thing. And yet at the same time, you know, in Federer's mind, it wasn't as simple as winning the last two sets, 6-2, 6-2. It was more, okay, got ahead in the fourth, and then things kind of went sideways and just kind of ended. And let me be a good podcast host for anyone who, who didn't see the conclusion of the match. Federer had regained the momentum. He was up a break in the fourth set and playing a, a fantastic, a, a clean set, uh, was 
was actually hitting forehand winners, which he hadn't been doing in the previous two sets. And then I think it was 15, it was love 15. Uh, and Roger hits a wide serve on the deuce side. Manorino hits a backhand return up the middle and Federer hits, uh, you know, I, I hate what happened at this point, but a brilliantly struck forehand short angle cross court behind Manorino. And as the Frenchman tried to stop and change direction, he slipped on the grass and sprained his knee. And it was clear from that moment, although he finished the fourth set and I think began the fifth, played a couple of points. If no, he didn't even start the fifth. He, he retired immediately after, uh, after the fourth set without starting uh, the fifth set with the knee injury. So that's how it went down. Uh, he did go to the net a ton and tried to finish points a lot earlier. And I actually thought the aggression on the forehand and the frustration on that side ended up helping him in the fourth set. Did you, did you feel that way? I thought he got so upset that he was missing it and playing so poorly on it. He started to hit it with a little bit more anger and it kind of worked out. Well, we all know about the role of emotion in tennis and it's all that thing about how you calibrate it. You know, it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's like Tabasco sauce or something and how much do you put in and how much do you, you want to overcook it, but it's important to use. And no matter how tranquil, we think these great players are, there does come this thing and maybe some of that emotion helps you get out of your head and you just start hitting the ball and it's like, okay, hit the ball the way I've been taught to hit the ball, hit it. But yeah, I think you're right. Absolutely. Well, and then the awareness of danger. I mean, that's the whole competitive thing. I mean, when you're in center court Wimbledon and down two sets to one first round match, I mean, that's, that's a big thing. What I see from Roger, the closest thing that I can think of in nature is what they call a magnetic storm. And just to give you a primer, the earth has a magnetic force field around it. And when that force field starts to weaken, what you get is fits and starts of breakage in that force field. And so what I see with Roger right now, it's like a magnetic storm. His serve is there sometimes. You're like, yeah. That's that's it. These Rogers here. The forehand is there. You're like, yep, that's Roger. The movement is there. You'll see a select point and you're like, he's moving great. He's moving like he always does. And then you see a burst of complete. It's not there. So it's just not that force field that that you used to have with Roger Federer. And it, it makes his entire situation a complete question mark. Right, because we got nothing. We, we got nothing really resolved at all today. We just kind of like, right. okay, now you're in the second round. But it didn't well, seem anything like in, too re indicative. Did we learn that Federer might have a bit of a confidence crisis? That it shouldn't be that fickle, right? I think Roger Federer feeling really good about himself in, a, you know, in the midst of a, a strong season with results to kind of rest not not rest the laurels on but kind of remember in the short term he, uh, Roger Federer in that position would not have gone a full two sets hitting his forehand with no confidence maybe a couple games but a full two sets to have that confidence crisis is not right confidence nerves experience right a long time without playing and also I think what we'll never know, and it's hard to know with any of these guys, is the physical, what's really going on in that body. What's his sense of how much he feels he can push things and, and what's pain and how that works. And um, 39 years old in tennis. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say 
it's just even Roger Federer. He's 39. So we'll see. All right, let's let's hit on Manorino real quick. Amy, do you enjoy watching him? I, I know Joel <laughs> and I are on opposite sides of the spectrum here. Uh, and look, I, I enjoy any tennis player playing a good tennis match. I'm fine with. I just, uh, I, I don't, uh, Manorino's style sometimes is just not pleasing on my eyes. Wait, uh, what do you think? Let's just, let's just get this. Wait, the, the style of the game or the attitude, the playing style or the emotional style and all, or all together once? Um, it's both. It's certainly, it's his on-court demeanor, which I don't, uh, I don't know if we want to get into that, but it's also just how he, how he plays the game, uh, doesn't, doesn't register with me. Yes. Ultimately. Yes. While that may not be my favorite, like I'm not going to seek out Manorino to watch one of his matches. I believe that the game is best when there's all sorts of different playing styles and all sorts of different playing personalities. Um, so I, I like a lot of diversity in that aspect of it. So in the long term, yeah, I like that that kind of player is there. No, I, I, I have, I have, um, I will put aside some of this parts from the uh, Manorino's emotions and sometimes he gets sulking, but I'm going to look at the tennis. I have, I have sought out Manorino. I'm left-handed and I enjoy it. Manorino to me is a little bit of the, that sort of, a certain kind of disruptor, like Sue Say and the woman's side and their Santoro is a deep, very, very somewhat different, but the notion of like kind of the um, mildly annoying player. They kind of crawl under your skin. They don't so much sledgehammer you, and they can't. And, and again, I have an affinity for that, having been accused of that in my day. Sue Shea is one I of my love, favorite players. <laughs> right, I, I I love her. I don't think Manorino brings that variety personally. He, Not a, no one, no one is quite like her in the whole riddle phase. But I just mean right. this is kind of the family of such. I mean, these are the family of people who you say, whether it's Manorino or Santoro or her or Nicolescu or Radwanska. Right. These are players who are like, hmm, they're not just quite your, 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 your repetition. And this gets to the talks you and I, Gil, have had about, let's say, the Spanish, the Spanish way, which is a little bit more, has a certain kind of discipline and fitness. And so it's kind of the, the diversity. Of course, then what happens with Manorino, his, I mean, it was an unfortunate injury, but throughout his career, he's, he's had a lot of cutting, but he hasn't had a lot of killing. Right, because Next he doesn't time. have... He, he doesn't have the the finishing power really it's like that's right he doesn't have quite the finishing power and he can kind of trouble it and santoro had some of the same quandary it's like you yeah. can pose a lot of questions and you earn a lot of wins but now you're for example a two out of three set match that could work kind of like a certain kind of shot maker kind of like uh, the struffs of this world with their power can play 1.7 great sets and make their way to the finish line but the three out of five, the big boys, the fitness, sustaining it harder. Yeah. Uh, I don't need power also. Rodwanska, one of my favorite WTA players ever. I, I loved watching her. And let me just lay out my case because I feel like I haven't yet. Yeah. To me, Manorino is a guy who I would, I would hate to play. He doesn't miss. He doesn't get tired. He keeps the ball really deep in the court. He hits very flat so it doesn't bounce up. And in that respect... Um, you know, he, he's tough and it, it's brutal to, to play him. And I don't mind a player who doesn't do much to, to their opponent, 
um, in terms of looking for ways to finish the point. I, I don't hate that either. But if you're going to play that style, I, I at least prefer someone who plays it with some fire, with some, with some kind of athletic power. Generally, I enjoy watching it a little bit more with racket speed. So like Jaume Munar would be the same way in which like I, we're going really deep here. But he's not necessarily aggressive. He doesn't try to hurt you. Similar to Manorino, doesn't really implement a, an aggressive style. But the way he's passive drives me a little bit crazy to watch. Well, that's true. That would be an interesting little coaching chat with Manorino about his demeanor and his emotions and all of that. That's an interesting thing. You're right. Because not demeanor, his demeanor. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I couldn't resist. No, it's very good. People have trouble with that name, so I just call him yeah. Demon. <laughs> but there you but, go. But of course, Alex is doing more. He's more in kind of a late newid mode and the pit bull and kind of digging in. Love where that. I think, right. But so I, I see it's kind of that's the interesting thing about the game. All these different temperaments, all these different styles, and I, I mean, Manry is it, to me. He's, he's made a career as kind of a cult player, kind of an under the radar, and he has some moments, and you see him here. And you see him there and every and, and it was a little unfortunate, I think, from a viewing standpoint that this, this did not go five sets. I mean, that would I have agree. been yeah. for all parties, for all parties, including Roger, like Roger can't help. Us. Well, OK, I guess I won. Right. So. All right. Maybe Federer would have won. Maybe he would have lost. But we won't we won't know um, because it's a retirement for Manorino. Federer on to the second round. Let's get to Djokovic. Four set victory for him against 19-year-old British lefty Jack Draper in the uh, in the first round. Novak dropped the first set, cruised for the next three. What were your main takeaways from this one, Amy? Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, I, I want to go back because I got a little bit of uh, information. I want to go back to Pass for a second, even though I know the show is not about Pass, I'll get there if you'll stay with me. Um, I was just circling around to some contacts, and um, I know some coaches that um, know some people that are working on the Pass team, and basically... Um, there was a choice after the Roland Garros final that he lost to Novak. And that was, does he try to enter a grass tournament and get himself some prep leading into Wimbledon, or does he rest? 
and the that you know there was some question about what to do and because of the shortened season due to covid and and the grass at wimbledon is playing a little bit differently even than it has in years past because the grass too had a cycle where it wasn't played on so um it's really interesting and a lot of the players are saying that the bounce is different so far this year ultimately patrick Moradoglu and his team uh, felt very strongly that Stefano should have rest. And that to me seems a very reasonable position given um, that the grandmother passed away and given everything with Naomi Osaka, you know, a, more awareness of the player's mental well-being. And, and that's what they decided. And, um, you know, Tiafo had multiple grass court matches going in and um, the team really felt that the lack of any grass court prep was um, a hindrance for Stefanos. So where I'm going with this as it relates to Novak is that I think it was really, really smart to go to Mallorca and enter the doubles and just get some hits on grass. Um, because I think what this situation is proving is that you really do need some grass prep. Well, and that Novak did in doubles. Yeah, I wonder if that Tsitsipas team was thinking, hmm, maybe we should have just done some doubles. I mean, you know, it's like kind of interesting. I mean, this is an unusual, exceptional time, and it's two weeks in between. It was his first major final, so maybe the idea of entering a tournament might have been much. But, uh, yeah, that stuff is so hard to, to calibrate what they did. But, yeah, Novak, of course. And for Novak, though, this pattern with the whether it's two weeks or three weeks, He's familiar with this routine. He's come from the Roland Garros final to Wimbledon many, many times, whereas for Tsitsipas, kind of a brave new world. So, uh, yeah, it's just it's interesting to know that. That's, interesting to know. That's, that's neat to hear that these players and their camps are figuring out what to do and what the factions. So so next year, we're probably going to see Stefano is probably going to enter three grass court tournaments and play doubles and, you know, or, or arrive with, you know, Rests on his feet or something. Well, thank goodness. Next year, we're back to more time in between the French and Wimbledon. And um, there's some talk that there should even be one more week yet so that we can enjoy a full grass season and that, you know, we, we can maybe um, really get invested in some of these grass court tournaments and not really see them as a Wimbledon tune up, but a tournament onto itself. So you would have a four weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon. That's what I would do. I would love well, a grass season. Well, I want to see, let's see, wait, I want to see, okay, so you got the four weeks, you know, I want to, yeah, the 75 week tennis calendar is coming soon. Well, too. I mean, I, I, I get that it's not as easy as just changing and, you know, there's, there's golf, there's things like golf to consider and the British Open and, and all sorts of other things. You can't just say, I'm going to make that change, but Ultimately, for the good of the players and the good of the game, yeah, I would like to see some time there. But um, as you said, Joel, Novak is a pro at managing, um, and, and all the big three are at managing this transition. And um, it, it was just a really smart move on his part to get into Mallorca. But just a little bit of doubles, yeah. It's yeah. the eightfold path. It was the middle ground, right? So Tsitsipas was saying, well, should I play singles or should I rest? 
So uh, yeah, it is interesting to think Novak was probably in that place too of, of what am I going to do here? Now it's a little different for Novak because although everyone missed out on any grass court play in 2020, Djokovic, uh, the, the surface for him is natural and the surface for Tsitsipas is, is unnatural. Um, so I, I think it's almost more necessary for Stefanos to get some, uh, some, some practice on it just because of how his strokes don't, don't do as well with the quick surfaces. But when it comes to Novak, uh, it's really the serve that, that stood out to me in the Draper match. He hits 25 aces, one away from his career high. His career high was in the uh, Francis Tiafo match in Australia. So now 2021, we continue to see ace records compile for Novak and the service winners are flowing. And this is a tournament in Wimbledon on the grass courts where he can really showcase that. Yeah, and I think you're right about Novak's experience. I mean, I think he made his decision on singles with these grass course events uh, months ago. I think he knew precisely what he wanted to do singles-wise, mm-hmm. uh, unless maybe he lost in the second round of the Roland Garros, maybe then some a grass court wild card. But I think he knew exactly what he's going to do, and he's he's won this uh, five times, so he knows how to get himself organized for Wimbledon. And it's interesting; both our guys played um, both our guys played left-handers. We play different kinds of left-handers. Manorino, what I call more the stiletto uh, kind of knife-like thing, and Draper more the sledgehammer, more what I think kind of in the in the Bob Bryan, Greg Ruzetsky, big serve, serve really well, um, you know, hitting some big ground strokes. But Novak, you know, he kind of he was kind of a little jolted in that first set, and then once he took his measure, it was kind of like okay, experience, skill, all of the above, all of the above over, over mm-hmm. him. Could we uh, talk about the footing as uh, Manorino obviously slipped and it made all the difference in, in the Federer match and ended the match. Novak was slipping all over the place, did so twice on break point, had seven break points in the first set. Two of them were lost because Novak slipped. And um, I, I find this, this all very interesting. Amy, you mentioned the court. Uh, people are saying it might be a little bit different. I don't, uh, I agree that it's different, but for people saying, oh, this is new. This is why everyone's slipping. Joel, I don't know if you can back me up here. This is not new. It's the first couple of days of Wimbledon. People slip, right? This is not new. Absolutely. It happens all, it happens all the time, particularly early in grass. And again, these are these kind of the 72 hour stories of every major. I mean, we'll hear a little bit more, but you hear about surfaces, you hear about balls and then on grass in particular, you're going to hear about slippage. And of course, now we've been two years since we've been at Wimbledon. So there's an adjustment to that. And yeah, and that happens. But what they were saying was not really about the slippage. It was about the height of the ball bounce. They were saying it was even lower than a typical Wimbledon. Um, So, you know, as, as we go through the draw, you can think about the taller players, but also look, as Joel said, this is like a first couple of days story because the court's going to harden up and it's a live surface and it's going to be a different surface, you know, at the end of this week than it will be even next week. But just one little tiny thing that I want to point out um, that I understand is that when the roof is closed, there's something with the humidity level or something like that that can Mm -hmm. make the grass surface just a little bit slippier. Well, it, no, no question. It's just it's it's it becomes a little more of that greenhouse effect, and 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 also the sense of weather and of movement. I mean, I think I think in indoor grass, that's you know you got you got grass, you got outdoors, you got indoors, 
you got weather, you got Wimbledon. I mean, a lot of things that, I mean, indoor grass, that's about, that's pretty darn unusual Yeah. there to be indoor grass. I mean, so that's a pretty adjustment yeah. curve. But the way Novak moves is also very different from the way most players move on grass. Djokovic um, will kind of treat it like a clay court and he'll slide into his shots. He'll move very aggressively where a lot of players will take a lot of smaller steps to try to reduce the, the need for traction. Uh, so uh, I do think that's worth pointing out. And then Djokovic hinted at the fact that, that maybe he wants to adjust the way he's moving on the grass if it's going to continue to be this slippery. But also, generally, when the grass gets played on more, it just gets less slippery. Yeah, and also, you know, I think it's funny. It's interesting to hear about Novak. There's a, there's a study out there waiting to be made by someone who knows nothing about tennis and all about movement to evaluate mm-hmm. The movement patterns of Novak Djokovic. I mean, and it's that that and to really break down what this thing really is. That what we talk about when we talk about footwork and balance and and wide steps and small steps and short steps and little steps. Because there's some things that will be revealed in the years to come that he may have well revolutionized. You know, the the outer leg, the core, all that stuff. Well, guys, the discussion we're having right now. Um, this has been kind of surreal for me because I have a TV to the right now. And uh, the conversation we're having right now is about to get a lot bigger because really bad news out of Wimbledon. Serena Williams was just playing her match. She has slipped and she has retired from, from her match with an injury. So, I mean, I'm sure, you know, again, I think we're all just reacting to this and seeing this now. And uh, none of us, I haven't seen it. And of course we haven't seen it. So I don't know if there's much to be said about it other than it happened. And, um, you know, it's the worst, the worst thing that can happen and just awful to see. No, that's terrible. I mean, Serena, great champion, came here with, with high hopes for obviously winning another major and, and uh, doing a little Wimbledon. And that is just a really, um, that is an unfortunate, unfortunate development. But we're going to, you know, as that. I was watching the um, Federer match, uh, the ESPN who televises Wimbledon here in the US, they had a really cool featurette with Serena and Roger and the symmetry, like their ages and they're both parents and and all these slams that they've won. Um, and it's just really eerie that both matches would be decided on a slip incident. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's, it's just terrible. Yeah, that is- All terrible. right. So we're going to hope, I hope, uh, you know, that's unfortunate that Serena had to withdraw from the tournament such oh my God, on her first match. It's terrible. Yeah. So uh, on an awful note, we have to uh, move on to, to previewing this, uh, these second round matches. And uh, we'll think about, about Serena, keep her in our thoughts because you just never want to see this in Manorino as well. It's just awful. Um, Novak Djokovic. Uh, plays Kevin Anderson in the second round in a bad run of form. It's a nine to two head to head career between Djokovic and Anderson. And I feel like it's a matchup we've talked about a couple times with how Djokovic slays the big servers. Uh, but, but also Anderson is a little bit different than a lot of them because he plays uh, a very steady uh, kind of machine like baseline game, which is kind of the same kind of game Djokovic plays, right? How, how do you think that dynamic plays out, Joel? I think you're right, Gail. I mean, they met in the final a few years ago, and Anderson's funny. He's like a, he's kind of like a, a grinder baseliner with a huge surf, 
right? He's, it's not in the Isner Opelka mode. It's more that way. And uh, he tested Novak in 2015. He was up two sets to love and lost at 7-5 in the fifth. But that was, that was six really long years ago for Kevin Anderson. He's had his share of injuries and other things he's dealt with. I think, uh, I think Novak just figures, all right, get the, get the serve back, make some good guesses on the serve, take care of mine, and just go to work. And Anderson, I think, I think uh, this is going to be a tough battle for Anderson. Yeah, it's if you know uh, what goes on sort of in the coaching realm with regard to Anderson, the, the prevailing school of thought is why does a guy that tall not come into the net more? Why doesn't he serve in volley more? I mean, it, it's, it would be really hard for him to miss with that height coming into the net, but he just doesn't. That's not his personality and that's not his style of play. Um, therefore, if he's going to stay at the baseline and duel with Novak Djokovic, I think he's in for a very long day and he's coming off, uh, he's coming off, he's coming off a a long, tough four setter in his first round match. So, um, not too worried. Well, I think it's also, I think also, uh, Djokovic can pick away at the Anderson forehand, which he hits pretty flat and, uh, and then they get in these rallies and that's not good math for Anderson. And I agree with you, Amy, that uh, a guy like Anderson should come to net, should come to net more. I think though some players, they answered, they become kind of controlling. They would not wish to be passed and, and engage in the kind of the agility it takes to be at the net and hit tip-ins and angle volleys and strange shots and, and be risk being passed. So they just kind of want to hunker down and Anderson's had an excellent career, but again, I don't, I see this as a, uh, and it's funny, and this is going to segue into the Federer matchup of a different kind of guy. Well, Joel, you love the word adjust, uh, excuse me, disrupting, right? Mm-hmm. I, I hear you use that word a lot, and I like it too. Anderson doesn't really do that much of that. He, uh, you know, he, he thinks he's better than you. He thinks skill for skill, he's better than you. But he's not really trying much out there. He just wants his skills to rise to the top. Well, that's his version of applying pressure and disruption of, of power and accuracy and the serve. But again, I think he would have had, he could dimensionalize himself. I think for this match, we need to see if he's willing to broaden his dimension. And that gets the same thing as we're talking about, uh, about Federer's opponent, Gasquet. We had this, mm-hmm. we had the same discussion about Gasquet at Roland Garros about, right? Yeah. So, so let's, let's think about what we talked about there. We come into the match and we're talking about how Gasquet often goes into these matches without much of a plan and just doesn't really try different things against opponents that have his number like Nadal. Then he ended up, we were actually pretty pleased with how he played Nadal because he flattened it out his entire game and played much more aggressive. And we were like, oh, that was pretty good. Well well done, Richard. So now he gets a crack at at Federer on the grass. He hasn't had much success against Roger either. Well, that's a, that's a two and 18. He's two and 18 versus Federer. So, uh, I don't know, Amy. What would what what would you what would you you just talk about Anderson coming to net more? What do you think a guy like Gasquet to kind of be in it with Roger? I think he'll slice a lot. You know, um, I, what I'm more interested in is what is Roger going to do? Is he going to continue to come to the net and not engage in long baseline rallies, or is he going to sort of use these first couple of rounds as his holla 
and play himself into form. And, you know, in this first round match, there were a couple of points that I thought, Roger, you could have, I, I know you, you could have ended this point, you know, five shots ago, but he seemed to be saying, well, what about this shot? Do I have this shot? And I thought, is he playing with fire by, you know, lengthening some of these rallies? So I'll be really interested to see how Federer uses the net because when push comes to shove, we know that he can always go to that game plan. It was certainly uh, an effective one uh, against Manorino in the fourth set when he he did exactly what you're alluding to, Amy. He said, okay, I'm not messing with uh, with this guy's baseline game anymore. First look I get, I'm cracking the forehand. I'm not holding back, and I'm coming in behind it. Uh, so that will, uh, that'll be an interesting one. Preview short uh, for this one, but of course we'll have recaps of round two previews of the round three matches as Djokovic and Federer both move on in four sets. That'll do it for this episode of three. We're available on all podcast platforms and we greatly appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like the video and leave a comment. We'll see you next time on the next episode of three.